6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 49 through 51. Father, we just thank you for the privilege that we have to come before you. We pray, Father, that you'd open our hearts and lives to your word, and that you'd also open your word to our hearts and lives, that we might behold Jesus Christ, that we might better understand the extremes that you have gone to on our behalf. We just thank you for this evening as we come to you in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're reviewing the book of Psalms. And of all the books of the Bible, in some respects, this one is the most frustrating because mostly, almost all the other books, historical books, prophetic books, what have you, it's not hard by doing a little bit of research to come up with some surprises, to get, to just, to get some tie-together events that help, help it along expositionally. But here we are plunged into a hymn book. And um, while we will hopefully, uh, pull together some expositional content, some background, historical background here, and the meaning of certain vocabulary there. The real challenge of the book is not expositional in the usual sense. It's really devotional. And uh, the proper way to do this, really, is to take each psalm and deal with it devotionally, and you can easily spend several hours on these, even the littlest psalms. But there's 150 of them. If we do that, we'll be we don't end up with a recording product that's going to be very useful to many because the people that should be immersing in them isn't the teacher, it's the student. What we really want you to do is get enamored enough with at least a few of these to really plunge into them. And when I say plunge into them, I don't mean just read them, but to really immerse in them. One of the fascinating things as I pull together research on the, on the Psalms is throughout history, how many of the great people that have made history, um, both in America and also Europe and elsewhere, were people who were immersed in the Psalms. There were portions of the Psalms that were their favorite literature, bar none, favorite part of the Bible. And it's very easy to litter a talk with some notes of this guy and that guy and who held it dear. And I, I've tried to not do too much of that because I'm not sure it's that helpful. I think what we really want you to do is, is how to embrace the Psalms themselves. Um, so tonight, we're going to take three of them and um, uh, explore them a bit. Okay, so we're in Psalm 49. To the chief musician, a psalm for the sons of Korah. And uh, Korah, of course, was the one that rebelled and God took care of him, but his sons... We're not punished for that, and they become very prominent in the Levitical structure and the music, musical side of that. Verse 1, hear this, all ye people, give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world. I want you to notice right away, this is not a psalm for Israel alone. 
the, the, the psalm is addressed to all the inhabitants of the world. So it's got a little different flavor than most of these. It's not a psalm of David, necessarily. Um, it's to the chief musician. It's a psalm, a, a song. Hear this, all ye people, give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. In this psalm, which is to all people, the Hebrew term is a very unusual one. It's for the total human scene. It's analogous to the word in the Greek called cosmos, for all the world. And uh, so... And this is the way he addressed uh, 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 his, peop his people when he first put them in the land and 800 years later when he's about to put them out of the land. He uses the, this, this, this uh, strange term. I will incline mine ear to a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. Now there's that strange phrase we find in the Old English, a dark saying. The term there really is a term that today we would probably translate a riddle. Solomon was, a, that was his primary hobby in Solomon's case, but this isn't Solomon. It's again, it's the dark saying. There's a riddle implied. There's a parable. There's a hidden meaning here it implies. Next, wherefore should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity of my heels shall compass me about? Now, one of the questions, who's asking the question here? Is it the poor? Is it the rich? Is it you? Is it me? I'll leave that to you to chew on here. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. Salvation is not for sale. There's no price adequate to pay for it. And... Uh, None of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give God a ransom for him. That's a very key verse, verse 7. A very, very profound one. I normally don't quote from other commentators, but I can't resist lifting a little bit from Spurgeon. If you're collecting commentaries on the book of Psalms, Wearsby is a great one. J. Vernon McGee has some great stuff. Uh, but the classic, three-volume typically rendering, is A Treasury of David by Charles had Spurgeon. But just here, just to give you on this verse, his, his comments were just irresistible. I had to include them. A king's ransom would be of no avail. A Monte Rose of rubies, an America of silver, a world of gold, a son of diamonds could be utterly contemned. O ye boasters, think not to terrify us with your worthless wealth. Go ye and intimidate death before ye threaten men in whom is immortality in life. <laughs> Virgin had, had a style like that. Continuing though, verse 8, for the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceases, ceases forever. What, let me not tiptoe around this. What has purchased redemption? The blood of Christ. But there's no conception that comes close to equaling that. It, all the wealth of the world can't, it wouldn't be as of no avail, but the blood of Christ has availed for you and I. And that's, that's already here in the Psalms, 800 years before the cross and all of that. That he should still live forever and not see corruption. Wow. 
For he seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. And someone died. Someone asked the attorney, how much did, what, what did he leave? You know what the answer was? Everything. Didn't take anything with him. <laughs> In other words, whatever it is, you're leaving behind. That's not quite true, by the way. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can send it on ahead. Luke 16 will explain how that works. He, I love what Jim Elliott said. It's an oft-quoted line. I finally tracked it down. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's the real meaning of life. You know, we, we, we strategize, we career, we, we fight the battle, and, uh, uh, but we do it tactically. We stand back. The real issue is eternal. Are we living our lives in terms of the long-term gain? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Moving on to verse 11. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever, that their dwelling places to all generations, they call their lands after their own names. It's interesting how subdivisions are always named after the guy's relative or his wife or whatever. The streets are named after his friends, whatever. And that's also... You know, a generation away, it's forgotten. They put their names on buildings, sure, but for how long? Even if building stands, do they remember? I mean, you know, it's, it's all so vain. And that's the whole book of Ecclesiastes. We'll deal with that if you want to get into it. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This is their way, this is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. And... Uh, in other words, dust to dust has very few exceptions, okay? The word sela, many commentators think, is a musical term. I don't think so. I think I side with Bullinger and others who believe it's a thought connector. Pause and the, uh, the translation I stumbled onto, I thought, what sela means is, think of that. <laughs> it's a pause to connect what's, what's behind what's coming forward. It's a, con a thought connector. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. The word grave here, by the way, is an unfortunate translation. It really is the Hebrew term sheol, the abode of the dead. The grave is a physical place. A person, you can own a grave. Somebody can own that piece of land that is buried. You know, a grave is a tangible, physical repose of the remains. And so it's technically not a good translation because it's not the grave. It's the abode of the dead. No one owns Sheol. You can own a grave. You can't own Sheol. The, he, the Greek equivalent term is Hades. It's the abode of, of the departed. Redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. And there again we have that Selah term. That's twice in this psalm, which is kind of interesting. And uh, so it says death shall feed them. What it actually, the Hebrew actually says is death shall be their shepherd. That's sort of a non-starter, isn't it? Yeah. See, the real issue in, in uh, verse uh, 15 is what will you inherit at death? And by the way, it's not as simple as being saved or not being saved. If you're saved, you can't lose that. Christ did the whole thing. It's your security in Christ is certain, but your inheritance may not be. Your inheritance, your right to rule with him, if so be that you're a partaker. 
Many people will, are saved, they'll be in heaven, but they will have forfeited their inheritance because of the life they lived. Interesting. Think of, check it out. That's, that's not free of controversy, but I suggest you might take a look at all of that. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of houses increased. See, part of the under, ter, underlying term, uh, term through the psalm is, why do the rich prosper? You know, that's a, that's a recurrent theme. That was the, the issue in Job. That is the issue uh, in the book of Habakkuk. Um, you know, it's, it's disturbing to someone that is God-fearing, is that why do the wicked prosper? And why are the good punished? You know, why, does bad, why do bad things happen to good people kind of thing? It's a very recurrent theme. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house increase. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers, and they shall never see light. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beast that perish. And so this is like evolution in reverse. Man is not as he's created, he's fallen. And he'll ultimately go the way of animals, but for the redemption. So that's a little short Psalm 49. Let's take a look at the next one, Psalm 50. This is a Psalm of Asaph, who is the musical, one of the musical directors there. And uh, this is the first one we've encountered of Asaph, a musician, and he was one of the three great song leaders of Israel at that time. Haman, Asaph, and Ethan were the three uh, top musical leaders. And uh, this will reveal God as the righteous judge, the judge of people, and to judge the wicked. So it sort of picks up from Psalm 49 in the same flavor. The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called earth from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself, Selah. Call to the heavens from above. He wants lots of witnesses. And this is all focusing on the covenant people, the people of the Jews, the children of Israel. And, uh, but verse 6, it needs to be said that he, the Lord Jesus Christ will be the judge. John 5.22 says that the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all the judgment to the Son. So even this is an Old Testament uh, perception here. Clearly Christ is at the center of all of this. Continuing, hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continued before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor goats out of thy fold. What he's dealing with here is that the, the ordinances are not what God is interested in. It's the same flavor that he does to, that Jeremiah brings out in Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah, he says, For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this thing I commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people. And walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. What he's really saying, don't confuse these ceremonial ordinances with the reality of what I've really called you to do in terms of obedience to his way. That's what he's talking about. And how easy it is for all of us to substitute ceremonies for substance. 
We do that in so many ways, always, always. Micah says a similar thing in Micah 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? No. Micah 6, 8. Often quoted again and again. He hath shown the old man what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to, walk, to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? It says it all. Strip away the ceremony. Strip away the, you know, the, the, the tapestries, the substance. What does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? Continuing Psalm 50 at verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle upon a thousand hills. See, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our help. He gives us opportunities to praise him and to offer these things, but he doesn't need them. For every beast of the forest of mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee. For the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. But unto the wicked, God saith, what hast thou to do to declare my statutes or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy, in thy mouth? Seeing thou hatest instruction and castest my words behind thee, when thou sawest a thief, then thou contendest with him and hast been partaker with adulterers. Thou givest thy mouth to evil and thy tongue to frameth deceit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother and slanderest thine own mother's son. These things hast thou done and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such and one as thyself. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show salvation of God. And I highlight conversation is one of those six or eight words that the King James have a different meaning today. Conversation isn't talk, it's behavior, total behavior. So that's, many of your Bibles will have that annotated, of course. So that's a quick snapshot of 49 and 50. Now, it's very, very typical to try to ascertain the historical context, what, these, what may have given rise to these psalms. And these particular ones, it isn't too helpful, it's quite speculative, so I didn't get into that too much. What you do with each one of these, really, is just to reread them and reread them and meditate upon them and glean them for what they may bring to your awareness for, to apply yourself personally. The next psalm that we're going to deal with is one that we have a pretty good perception of what the historical context was that brought this psalm about. And I've gone lightly over the first two because I think that's, they're pretty self-evident. But Psalm 51 is a classic. Many people who are not familiar with any of the other psalms are all aware of Psalm 51. And the background, the historical background before we get the psalm is in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And it's the famous uh, uh, incident between David and Bathsheba. 
So let's skim through that before we jump into that psalm. In 2 Samuel 11, first verse, it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. That last sentence is the first hint that there's a problem brewing. This general, this incredible military leader, wasn't with his men. He sent Joab, the, the head of the host, captain of the host. He's staying in Jerusalem. That's not, not like David. He's kicking back. He's letting them do the, the fighting right, with Ammon and Rabbah. David tarried still at Jerusalem. And therein the plot begins. And it came to pass... In an evening tide, that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Now, all kinds of speculations. Um, was she setting him up? Some suggest. Whatever. Was she really a stranger or had they met as a friend of the family? There are all kinds of nuances that some people will try to build upon, but we'll keep moving here and see what the, just what the text says. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So she's a married woman. In fact, she's married to one of the mighty men. There's a core group, the top fighters for David. He was one of them, one of his most loyal troops. David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she, returned, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived, and sent and told David, and said, I am with child. Well, David's got a problem. Things, it's amazing how sin is never simple. Truth is simple. It's straightforward. Sin gets complicated. And sin begets sin after sin after sin. Anyway, David's got a problem. David sent to Joab, the captain of the host, saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. They're, they're out there battling. Send, he wants Uriah to come home. Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah was come unto him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. David said to Uriah, go down to thy house, wash thy feet. Uriah departed out of the king's house and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. So he gave him food, and he's hoping he'll go home, obviously. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. When they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said to Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thy house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and the Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in open fields. Shall I then go into my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest, as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. <laughs> David's, got, David's got a problem. David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also and tomorrow, and I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and tomorrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And he, at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. Can you, you begin to realize the king's frustration? 
came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab. This is a sealed letter, obviously. Sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. So he's arranging with his, 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 the commander of his army to make sure that Uriah is a casualty. That's basically what's happening here. Do you see the sins compounding? Obviously, he's, gonna, he's guilty of murder of Uriah. He's also entangling Joab into dishonesty. See, these things multiply. It came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah into a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When thou hast made an end of telling the matters of the war to the king, and if so be that the king's wrath arise, and he said unto thee, Wherefore approached ye so nigh unto the city when ye did fight? Knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast a piece of millstone upon him from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why went ye not nigh or near the wall? Then say thou, thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. That's the point that Joab wants to get back to the king. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. The messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us into the field, and we were upon them even unto the entering of the gate. And the shooter shot from off the wall upon thy servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife, and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music